Welcome, everybody, and back for another edition of Two Man Advantage podcast. As always, Pierre Lebrun, I know that you are waiting with bated breath and a terrific treat today. And I can say this now because it's the day after Halloween, right? Trick or treat. You got that, right? You're with me on the whole trick or treat thing, but a tremendous treat. Katie Strang joining us, Pierre, and we were just saying it's like the band's all back together here. Katie, welcome. Thank you. I feel all warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> I, 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 I know that Katie's on because I can hear her typing. She, she never stops working. She's, uh, <laughs> she's, she's tapping away. She's probably going to write a column during our podcast. She's no, I'm not that productive. I'm not nearly <laughs> that productive. I was just tweeting out a co- like a, an old Voinov column of mine that is now much more timely. Well, you know what I wanted. I wanted to, at some point I want to bring in Halloween candy and pepperoni. But Katie, once again, you part of the matter. But uh, let's. I mean, let's start with that. I mean, first of all, Katie, since uh, since you came over to the athletic, now it's what? How long has it been? Has it been a year and oh, a half? A year and a okay. half around there. Yeah. Yeah. You have um, you've tackled some of the weightiest topics in. Uh, in, in certainly in sports journalism, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, and, uh, maybe in, uh, just in general, I mean, if you talk about your, you know, your, your journey, having coming over to the athletic and, and done such great work on, on topics, which are, uh, are incredibly important, but also incredibly difficult in, in, on some levels to report and write. And I wonder what it's, what it's been like for you and, you know, where, where you feel you're at in terms of, in terms of where you're at professionally. And I, um, yeah, go. I'd be happy to. Um, it's been incredible, truly, like better than I could have ever imagined. I mean, I feel sort of cheesy saying this, but it was like, this is kind of the dream job, how I envisioned it. And, you know, I had done some of this type of stuff at ESPN, like doing a lot of like criminal, the intersection of criminal legal stuff in sports, um, but on a much more sort of one-off basis. Um and, and, you know, I had, you know, I was kind of constricted by, you know, the daily stuff that I was responsible for, right? Um, so I never felt like I was able to kind of tackle the stories that I really wanted to. Um, and when I talked to Alex and Adam at The Athletic, you know, that was one of the first things that I talked to him about is this is something that I'm really passionate about. And I, I really am fascinated by the, you know, intersection of social issues and sports and this is something where I feel like it could really add some value. Um, and I have some experience, but I'd like to really see what I could do if, you know, sort of the handcuffs or shackles were off. Um, and they were like, go for it. So it, it's been awesome. It's, you know, as I'm sure you guys can all appreciate, like, it's been very invigorating from a journalism perspective uh, to pursue things that you're passionate about and that you think are important. And I love that. Like we have the autonomy and the discretion to decide like what, what stories might our readers want to see, what stories aren't out there that really should be. Um, so it's been awesome. Pierre, do you think there's a, a greater appetite for those kinds of stories now that that sports fans are, are more open to um, wanting to, to learn about, you know, whether it's issues of domestic violence or drug use or mental health, mm-hmm. uh, all of those things and all of those stories, you know, which have been, been 
um, dealt with in, I think, an incredible manner on the on the pages, the virtual pages of the Athletic, and of course, in, in uh, you know by other medium as well. But um, do you think there's a, a greater appetite for those kinds of stories now than you know maybe five years ago or ten years ago? Well, first of all, I, I, I you know maybe that's the wrong question, and and, and I'll tell you why, because. This is an example, and Katie has knocked it out of the park with all all of the real serious issues that she's tackled since she's come on at The Athletic. We live in the world where a lot of editorial decisions are so weighted on clicks and and what people want to read. And that's important because we're running a business. But there are times, and I've talked about this behind the scenes, you know, with some of our editors at The Athletic, you also need to do what's right journalistically and ethically. So you have to balance what you know sells and balance what has to be covered. And sometimes they intertwine. Sometimes you can you can overlap on both. And I think a lot of Katie's stories have overlapped on both. But sometimes you just need to have something out there that has to be covered regardless of whether the average fan's like, I don't want to read about that. And I think it's important to say that out loud. And um, and, and so my, my point being, you talk about the appetite. I think there are a lot of sports fans that absolutely have devoured a lot of this stuff because these are the times that we live in and it's harder and harder to separate the sports world from what's going on in real life. But certainly I'm sure Katie has seen this from some of her, you know, the reader comments or, or, or some, from the, from the Twitter verse, which is always a dangerous place to base reality on. But you know, there are, there are still probably some sports fans who just want their sports world and want escapism. So you probably have both camps, but I think it's more important than ever to have the kind of journalism that, that Katie has been delivering. Well, Katie, I'm, I'm curious. Do you get, like, have you, has there been some backlash or has, has, have the positives outweighed the negatives? I mean, whether it's in dealing with the Nasser situation or, uh, you know, any of the other things that you've been writing about, do you, I'm like, listen, Twitter's a, it's a hellhole, right? In, in, in many ways. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it let's, and Pierce, right. You have to take all of that kind of stuff with a grain of sand because it's not necessarily a reflection of reality, but it also is, you know, it's a meeting place for the world, right. To, to digest all kinds of things, in, including journalism. And I wonder if the, if your experience has been more positive than negative, have you had people, you know, have you had days where you're like, geez, I, I, um, I wish I'd never, you know, I wish I was just writing a game <laughs> story for the Islanders. Oh right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I would say the response has been overwhelmingly positive. I would say the only real backlash I got was, you know, we covered, you know, especially because I'm, you know, affiliated with the Detroit outlet, um, the managing editor there, we covered the Nassar trial extensively. I mean, how often are you going to get a national story in your backyard? It was something like I grew up a competitive gymnast. I'm very passionate about um, shedding light on sexual abuse in sports, which I think is a pervasive problem and much more common than people think. So it was the intersection of all these things that I'm very interested in. Right. And so, you know, I basically asked Craig, like, can I just go cover this? And he was like, you know, handed me the keys and was like, have at it, which was great. Um, I think what we saw happen was, um, because we covered it pretty aggressively and actually because I covered it in a little bit of a different way than I've covered other stories. And a, a lot of the times I wrote columns, um, on sort of what I experienced in the courtroom. So I was instead of 
you know, kind of using that journalistic objectivity, I felt like I was doing more of like funneling and channeling the emotion of the event into something um, a bit more critical and, and analytical. Um, I think there was some backlash among like our state, you know, our, our Michigan state fans. And I think they felt at some point we were pretty hard on Michigan state and we were. And now I certainly think that was appropriate, but like, you know, I wrote a column about how John Engler should be fired and I still stand by that and believe that to this day. Um, but I think once we, we, we saw that once the um, like Nasser coverage started to be bleed into, you know, sort of bigger macro criticisms of the sports and athletics departments at um, Michigan State, I, I think people felt like it was a little bit overkill or that we were being um, – disproportionately critical and it was funny because a lot of people were like you guys you guys at the athletic detroit hate michigan state so much which is funny in the sense that you know both the editor-in-chief craig Custins, and i went to michigan state and loved that institution dearly and so it was kind of a fascinating project in the sense that um what i tried to impart to people was i'm very critical of this institution not because i hate it, but because I love it, right? Like I, I expect a certain standard and a certain level of accountability. And because I love it and want to see it, you know, the university really reflect the values that I know it for, I am going to be very critical. So, but besides that, I would say it's been overwhelmingly positive. I think people do understand these are the times that we're in and that stuff like this needs to be covered. Yeah. And, and, and Katie, I, I'm fascinated by your response to this because in my world which is the hockey world you know one of the most important stories of the last few years you know has been the the former players concussion lawsuit uh and i happen to be affiliated to i think the two journalists that have done the, the greatest work on it yourself and, and request headed with my other employer at tsn and that's an example of where i feel like you have to cover that story. You have to shed light on it. And we have to continue to do more and more work on, you know, concussions and, and CTE and everything else. And I will tell you, though, that I can tell from a lot of fans' reaction that they're not that dialed in on it. That, that That's an example of a story where it must be told and, and it's important, but that a lot of hockey fans are kind of meh on it and and so that's an interesting thing to me and you know what i wonder pierre is i wonder if like we as writers so like for example me and rick westhead and rick's done phenomenal work on this and i think has really set the set the bar and the gold standard for coverage on this issue but like maybe that's making me like hey you you have to do a better job of covering it to make it appealing to fans to make fans care about it to make fans understand mm -hmm. about it and I think Rick's done a really good job of personalizing, you know, when you see a class action lawsuit and you see numbers, um, th those sort of like, just like gloss over. And I found that a lot in the Nassar case too. Like there's over 300 young women who are sexually abused by this serial pedophile. And you, you hear that number, right? And it means one thing to you. But like, I can tell you from sitting in that courtroom for, you know, the better part of two weeks, like when you hear all 300 of them, and you see them as like, you know, prepubescent girls or 40 year old mother of twos, like in their, you know, their voices are cracking and their hands are shaking. Like 
that means something entirely different. And like, mm-hmm. so that Rick Westhead piece about Joe Murphy, I think yeah. was really, it had that really visceral, powerful element to it because he did not, you know, talk about the case in its sort of drier, like more legal components. He put a personal um, element yeah. to that. And so maybe that's an indictment on the people you know, that are covering the case and myself included, that we need to find ways to tell the story that is different. Right. Well, but but and Pierre, you're involved in the the mental health uh, public awareness campaign that that's so important in in Canada through um, through Bell Media. Um, Katie, you know we've we've all dealt with players now who've been. Um, I don't know whether they're more comfortable, but certainly more willing to share their personal stories. And I wonder if, you know, part of it, and whether it's a guy like Daniel Carcillo, who is so um, passionate and vocal about the the league becoming more responsible. And I say the league, not just the league, but also the Players Association in terms of taking care of, of players and recognizing the issues that uh, that stem from blows to the head and concussions and all the, the, the offshoots from that, you know, Nick Boyden has been very vocal about his own uh, difficult journey. And, and, you know, you go down the list, you know, uh, Robin Leonard's terrific piece and, and on our site earlier this season about his battles with drugs and alcohol. But uh, Katie, I wonder if you think that it becomes easier to tell those kinds of stories now than maybe in the past. And do you think if that is the case that it maybe leads to more significant change and maybe it's, you know, whether it's a resolution to the concussion lawsuit or whether it's a, a policy at the NHL level for domestic violence or whatever the kinds of changes that, that people are, are in some areas lobbying for, do you think we have a better chance of seeing you know, organizational or institutional change because people are more willing to come out and say, listen, I'm, I'm not going to be silent. I'm going, I'm going to share my story and whether it's with us or, or writing it themselves or whatever form that takes. Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I definitely think that having transparent, candid dialogue is um, generally what adds to sort of the public discourse and the public pressure and, is often the impetus for change. And, you know, I think light is, you know, generally the best antiseptic into any problem. And so the more awareness there is and the the more sort of thoughtful and respectful discourse on both sides and on all sides, it's not always binary, um, is, is productive. And I think it's a start. And I think that's, you know, that should be something that should be considered uh, a positive thing. And, and I do think that we're seeing much and much less stigma in a lot of different facets of hockey culture. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it's been tremendous, especially through hockey. And I, I, thought it, I think it was Robin Leonard, you guys can correct me, in, in his piece, you know, a special contribution to The Athletic, where he opened up about his, his difficult journey. And I think it was him that mentioned that, that thanked the doctors and the NHL and NHLPA substance abuse mm-hmm. program, um, w- which is noteworthy because as much as I think the league and the NHLPA still have more that, that can be done, it's not like they're not doing anything. And that program does uh, provide behind the scenes help for these guys. Of course you have to seek help, but, um, but, but that's why, you know, you mentioned Dan Carcillo, Scott, I mean, I love his passion for all of this and he's using social media to try and, and, and identify problems that he believes still exist. So all that is, is healthy. And, and again, to get back to the original point, I, I, I do think that hockey fans 
have really appreciated these players coming out and talking about their struggles because it, it helps, you know, a lot of people in normal walks of life perhaps seek out help themselves. And I think that's the best part of all of this. On on the specific concussion issue, that's why I brought it up with Katie. I still have fans who will say to me, I feel bad that this is happening, but that's the inherent risk of going on the ice. Like there's still that old school sort of you know, we're not insensitive, but we also think that that that's the that's the deal you make when you play pro sports. And so that that'll be the interesting battle going forward is if some fans start to change their tune on that or not. Um, Katie, I, I'm just I'm uh, I'm multitasking now. I know Pierre that this is unusual for you to see me doing this, but I, I noticed that um, you actually retweeted a, a piece that you had written some time ago on. Um, on Slava Voinov and uh, what NHL should teams, uh, NHL te- teams that might be contemplating inquiring about his services should know. And and uh, I know that you just sort of retweeted that as a piece that you wrote some time ago. But I'm curious what you you covered it so um, so well when we were all at ESPN, and that was some time ago. Um, but it's an issue that um, hasn't completely gone away. And I wonder when you think of of this kind of story, whether you see it as a kind of a watershed moment as we move forward for the league and its teams, uh, if a team is going to be at some point serious about maybe having him return to the NHL and playing for them, or how you how you view the Voinov thing, whether it's you see it as sort of a a watermark or or something that uh, that is really going to send a strong single one way or the other, however it's resolved. Actually, I do think it will be a watershed moment. I think it'll, or at the very least, I think it'll provide us some clarity and some keen insight into how the league feels about domestic violence. Um, and, and it comes at an interesting moment. You know, there was some controversy um, about the Austin Watson um, suspension and such in the fact that the NHL does not have a firm domestic violence policy. Um, and I know that's come under quite a bit of scrutiny um, before. And, you know, it, it, it's an interesting philosophical discussion. And I have talked to people at the league about this. And the sense that I got from them was essentially if you establish a rubric or even kind of a looser blueprint um, and, and you codify that in some way, it boxes you in a bit, right? Um, you are forced to adhere to that. And sometimes that is a good thing. Um, but sometimes that is uh, a prohibitive thing or, or something that could constrain you. Um, and I think for that reason, there's a reluctance. And, and I'm not saying that this is the right or wrong, but I think that is why the league is reluctant um, to craft that policy. And, and OK, so this is why this ruling will be very fascinating to me, because from what I've sort of heard and talking to people conversationally about Gary Bettman, this is an issue that he feels very strongly about, that he um, his tendency would to be more punitive versus not in a domestic violence context. And for that reason, he might not want to be constrained by what a traditional rubric of a domestic violence policy would be. Um, I, you know, in in this piece that I wrote originally about, you know, sort of giving the context and the protocol for what would need to happen for Voinov to be reinstated, he, once this investigation, which we now learn today has been initiated, um, and they're starting from ground zero, just remember that Slava Voinov did not cooperate with the investigation the first time because it was concurrent with his ongoing legal stuff. Um, 
once that is completed, he must still meet with Gary Bettman, who I think at the very, very least would impose a significant suspension. I would not be shocked if he just said no. I could be wrong. I, I mean, this is a, this, I'm, it's not an educated guess in the sense that no one has told me that or indicated that, but it wouldn't shock me if what people are telling me about Gary Bettman's true feelings of domestic violence are true. Yeah. So I, I will be I, I, very I, I, fascinated uh, about that. And I Pierre could, probably uh, has some really good insight too. Well, I could be wrong, but I, I thought I heard this summer that, that Voinov had met with Gary Bettman as well already. And, and, so, and, and it may be that that was more informal. Um, yeah, I think I think they met with the league, and I don't know if Gary was in there, but I believe Bill was, and I I, I know right. um, Slava's agent was, I, and I think it was more or less what would need to happen. Right. What does the process look like if and, we want to get reinstated? It's it, I agree with everything you just said, Katie, and I think you're right about the commissioner. I mean, I you know I I, I think that. And you saw it with Austin Watson. I mean, he, he went a lot harder on that case than a lot of people had predicted. And, and a neutral arbitrator scaled it back, which tells you something about where the league wants to head on this, I think. And and this is an area I want to touch on that I want to touch on. I'm, it's so uncomfortable for me to talk about because, to me, you know, you can't condone any kind of activity like this at all. I mean, domestic abuse is domestic abuse. But... You would know this better than me, Katie. It, it certainly sounds like there are different degrees of severity in in the Austin Watson case compared to the Voinov case. Correct? Uh, cor- correct. So, if you were to apply like a legal standard to those cases, from my understanding of both, yes, mm-hmm. you, those right. people would have been charged with different things. Yeah. And, and so, what I'm getting at is that the reason why I could see going back to your point about the league maybe not wanting a standard. If you do this, you get X games policy is that I think that it's probably more prudent to take each case individually on its merit because, you know, the different actions deserve a different response, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I and I think um, what's sort of frustrating but necessary um, for all parties involved in this is that there's a lot of information about these cases that we will never know. Right. And, um, you it's know, even th- yes. And, and I've covered these in baseball as well. And, um, you know, that when you have league investigators, they don't have subpoena power. Um, they're sort of investigating at the whim of people's cooperation. Um, however, you know, the both leagues, they have, relationships with law enforcement officials and um, each team like has sort of liaisons from a law enforcement perspective. And those people can usually get, provide some pretty good insight. Um, So, you know, but we never see those, most of the things that are unearthed during those things are never see the light of day. And, and that's not just to, you know, sort of protect, um, the alleged perpetrators, um, rights, but it's also to protect, um, the privacy of the person of the complainant or the person Mm -hmm. who, um, you know, is the alleged victim in the case as well. Right. So uh, I'm, we're actually going to, we're going to wrap the first segment here of two man advantage in, in just a minute. But, you know, for me, one of the interesting parts of, 
And I think it's interesting for <clears throat> for fans too is when you contemplate a player like Slava Voinov, and you know he's a two-time Stanley Cup uh, winner uh, in a league where you know puck moving defensemen are at a premium. I can understand why there is a lot of debate about whether you know we'll, the value of a player like that to one of the 31 NHL teams. But Pierre, let me ask you this, if, if I can first then, I mean, do we ever get to a point where 31 teams say, you know what? I, I don't care how, I don't care how much we need a buck moving defenseman. I don't want that guy on my team. And because we, our team stands for something different and mm-hmm. out of respect for our players and their families and all of our fans and for the game itself, we're, we're not going to touch him with a 10 foot pole. Uh, I, maybe that's being, uh, you know, Pollyannish, but it, my, my gut tells me we're, it, the, the teams are looking to the league to make that decision for them, perhaps, as opposed right. to the team saying, you know, I don't I don't care what our policy is. I don't care what the league says. I wouldn't want on my on my team anyway. And I wonder if you do you buy that. And, and is there you know, do we get to a point where the teams are where basically the team say we, uh, we wouldn't want them anyway? Yeah, well, certainly I don't believe there's any chance you'll ever play for the Kings again. Let's start with that, because it would be. You know, it would be the Kings that would have to trade his rights if he ever got re-entry. Number two, I know of a few teams, and I know which teams they are, that did investigate the merits of trying to acquire him this past summer. Um, and actions speak louder than words. They didn't do it. So what does that tell you? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know why they didn't, but all I can gather is they probably felt that it was sending the wrong message to their fan base despite the fact that he, he's a very good player. Um, you know, I mean, this is, you know, all of this is in many ways uncharted, ter- uncharted territory, hockey-wise. The bottom line is he hasn't paid the price NHL-wise yet for his actions because he bolted to Russia after all of this basically happened. So, you know, I, I don't believe that a player should pay forever but he certainly has to pay a stiff price for his actions. And, you know, to Katie's point, I don't know if, if it's going to be that he'll never be able to play again in the NHL. But I'll tell you this, if he does return to the NHL, it'll be only after a lengthy suspension from the NHL, in my mind. Katie, what do you think? What do, Does your gut say, do, do we ever see Slava Voinov in an NHL jersey again? Or what do you, what do you think? I don't. Um... That's not to say I don't think some teams will toy with the idea. And I can't decide if, I mean, that's pure gut feeling on my part. And that I, I can't quite discern whether it's because I think the NHL will say no or, or assess a, potentially assess a suspension that is so prohibitive that he just says, screw it, and goes back to Russia to play there, um, where the money is very good. And, you know, that's back home for him. Um or if I think, you know, that a, a team will balk at it, maybe send out some soft feelers and then sort of balk at the, you know, the premise or the reality of, of what bringing him aboard would look like. Um, and there are some sort of parallels in other sports that we have seen. Um, the Houston Astros uh, traded for Roberto Osuna before, Mm -hmm. you know, his domestic violence case was ever even adjudicated, um, in, in the Ontario, you know, courts and Jeff Luno caught a lot of heat 
for that, N- not just, um, you know, from people around the league, but from his own fans. And also, I think there was more um, discontent among his own players than has probably come out publicly. But um, he put a lot of his players in pretty tough positions. Um, people that have been very vocal and emphatic about um, domestic violence in the past. And then he essentially um, asked those people, foisted upon them, um, you know, this player who had this cloud hanging over him. Now, I should I should definitely, you know, provide this, that the charges um, were later withdrawn and he signed into a peace bond. Um, but, you know, I, I think that was... I think that was a pretty contentious time within the Astros organization. And I I don't know what sort of long lasting implications that will have, but I don't think it's for the faint of heart. And I don't think it should be discounted Mm -hmm. that there will be, there will be intended and unintended consequences of bringing him into a team. And I I, think any GM needs to prepare for that. I I personally wouldn't, I I personally just would not go there if I was running an NHL team, but, you can understand the allure deep down because top four right-handed defensemen are literally like the unicorn in today's NHL. And so, you know, you could, you could just see internally the hockey discussion and then somebody says, yeah, but no, <laughs> I mean, it's and just, I, and, and, and also I should like, I should also say like, I do think he has the, I think he has the, you know, the right to apply for reinstatement and to try you know, I mean, he did have those charges expunged, which is very different from what I think a lot of people sort of ex- think it to be. But um, I definitely think he should have the right to try to um, apply for reinstatement. And I think he absolutely deserves the right to be represented and defended vociferously by the NHLPA. That is their jobs. Um, but I, like Pierre said, I would I would really like to see basically no one being willing to take that step to employ him is, is what I think is the appropriate reaction. Yeah. All right. I love this. This is great. Katie, it's so great to have you on. It's such an oh, important great to uh, topic. Back. Yeah. Okay. But don't go anywhere. All right. No, and here, I, I know that, you know, you know, the drill don't go anywhere. Cause we'll come back with the second segment of two man advantage, the podcast, and we will come right back with Katie Strang. All right, as promised, here we are. Now, I, I want to ask the other interesting thing that I know you've been working on on this, Katie and Pierre and I. You and I talked about with Bill Daly last week, and how prescient of of us was that <laughs> to ask Bill Daly about gambling and wagering and uh, legalized uh, wagering, of course, uh, with some of the news. But I, you know what? I, I got derailed when we started here because I, I wanted to, you know, not everyone knows Katie that you bestowed upon me maybe one of the greatest birthday gifts of all time which was in fact a styrofoam bowl filled with pepperoni slices of pepperoni with a candle in it while i was standing at the bar at shales cafe in pittsburgh and i i just want i think people should know that that's one of the it's one of my most treasured birthday gifts of all time and i, I want to publicly thank you for for a memory that uh, that will not will not go away so thank you for that well, that's a memory that endures for me as well. And I feel like we should probably provide the backstory, which is that Scotty does not like to eat real human meals on the road. He likes to just basically, you know, take whatever growlies or chips and salsa are available at, at last call. But 
you made, sometimes I have to kick you in the butt to actually have some square meals mm-hmm. and this isn't a square meal, but I'll take it over chips and salsa. You did ask Shale's Cafe at one point to provide you with a late night snack of pepperoni. And that was the <laughs> impetus behind the gift. Yeah. So I just, well, I, uh, I want people to know it wasn't an off the cuff, you know, process uh, splurge. It was, there was actually some, you know, there was some backstory and there was real meaning in that gift. Yeah. Well, and well, emotion, well, quite frankly. Actually, wait, 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 hold, hold on, hold on. Are, are we, is this segment about telling shale stories or? <laughs> no, no, because that would be a four hour podcast. It, that would be a mini series. In By fact. the way, can I just interject real quick that the last time I have been in shales was pregnant drinking yes. a diet Coke. So I want you yes. to just imagine what that that night was like for me. I just, I'm not sure. And, and I'm pretty sure the social services will be calling up because your <laughs> no, unborn daughter making a trip know, to shale. Um, but, but, but I will say Katie's bang on. We've had to sort of reform Scotty's ways on, on off nights that it's important to eat. So I, 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 I do regular meal. No, I, uh, certainly when I'm present, uh, we, we go for a nice meal. That is, so, and actually, tech, technically, the first bowl of pepperoni was, uh, it was purchased down the street at Milano's Pizza Milano's, Place. Milano's, yeah. Yes, so. and actually, and I, I, I uh, because the bartender there had to come up with a price, I said, how much for a bowl of pepperoni? And I believe it was $5, so. Yeah. Which, and then which, you went and got it. And we should not yeah. misconstrue any of these stories with the stories of Scotty putting tiny bits of pepperoni in my shoes every morning during the Vancouver Olympics when we shared uh, accommodation, and I wanted to yeah. strangle him by the end of the Olympics. That's that's a yeah. whole different story. Yeah. That is, a com- and completely different cuts of pepperoni. Those were pepperoni <laughs> sticks. So. All right, so back to so it was funny because last week we had Bill Daly on the podcast, and we were chatting, um, and, and we were just sort of a um, really a, a throwaway question about whether there had been any change to um, legalize wagering on the game, and uh, lo and behold, it was like the next day or two days later, the uh, the league's uh, formal um, partnership with MGM Resorts uh, in terms of sponsoring um, with non-exclusive, but a sponsorship arrangement with MGM Resorts, um, one of the largest uh, sports books um, in, in the United States, I believe. But now I was reading today, Katie, that um, in Pennsylvania, um, wagering on sports is also following uh, falling under the umbrella and following Delaware, New Jersey, and of course Nevada in uh, in opening up this uh, avenue. And in fact, a casino in Philadelphia and one in Pittsburgh uh, will both uh, be able to um, provide legal sports betting. I've been to mm-hmm. both those casinos. Oddly enough, I've been, I didn't know that I was doing research ahead of time, but yes, I've been to both. And <laughs> I just want you know I wonder whether you you know is this is this inevitable and maybe you know how you see this maybe unfolding is this is this good for the game that people who you know might otherwise you know maybe they the, the does it drive up interest in the game do you think or what do you, how do you yeah. how do you see this unfolding yeah i do I, I i don't know if i see it necessarily as good or bad but more or less inevitable and and i think you can even when you trace the genesis of the league's um, attitudes towards it they reflect that as well which is, you know, whereas prior you would sort of um, had Gary Bettman, you know, not wanting to deign to um, betting and gambling. And then, you know, re- realizing that PAPSA, you know, was going to meet the fate that it did. 
Um, except that, yes, this is coming. So how do we capitalize on it? How do we take advantage? How do we use it, um, you know, to be advantageous to us? And, you know, one of the first ways that we saw the league, um, actually not just the NHL, but what we saw other leagues doing was, um, especially in like state legislatures and such is try to get ahead of the game and lobby for what is called an integrity fee, which is essentially, um, a royalty fee, um, that, you know, it's a percentage off the sports book that, you know, basically it's, it's provided these leagues under the premise that it's going to cost them more time and resources and money to regulate the game now that there is, it is open to betting. And, um, so that would have been, that would be covered in, that would be a part of HRR. Um, now the NHL, I found that somewhat curious that they, they are not seeking an integrity fee. And I don't know if that's because um, the other league's attempts at seeking it haven't been super successful and they've already gone from like 1% looking for that to 0.25%. But um, yeah, so I, I think that in general, there will be an increase, there will be some increase in, in fixed revenue. And so that will be, you know, obviously added into the collective pot. I think there is a chance that it it could um, lead to increased fan engagement and connectivity. Um, I think we've seen that even like in the WNBA, which I think has become a really interesting um, avenue of betting. And I think we've seen that league really kind of um, soar and explode in terms of interest. Um, and I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if more casual fans could get drawn into hockey um, as a, you know, result of betting. Sure. Well, I, sure. I, I, I'll tell you what, there isn't a the dumbest thing alive is to bet on hockey. I have to tell you. Now, I don't bet on <laughs> hockey. I don't bet on hockey because I cover it as a sport. I love betting on football, but no sport is closer in parity than the NHL. Like how? How? I don't know. I mean, I guess. There are people wiser than me, but I, I think it's the biggest loser's bet going in pro sports is to try and make money betting on hockey games, in my mind. Uh, I just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> well, that's right. It, it, now, it, now it excuses the reason that I seem to fail so miserably in our uh, annual hockey, uh, Media <laughs> yeah, Hacks hockey pool. So, yeah. Yeah, well, so I, I, but, but I feel the okay. Thing, uh, the one thing that interested me about the, the MGM announcement, uh, I think, wasn't Bill Daly's response on our podcast, Scott, your question, essentially, we can't have her head in the sand about all this. So kind of hinted yeah. at what was coming, I guess. But what interests me the most is that, I, you know, the NHL is not nearly as forthcoming on injury disclosure and injury detail than any other league. And I think Gary Bettman has defended that. And I think the players are on, you know, are, are on the same page that, you know, when you see how detailed the NFL is in, in terms of injury information, I, I just don't think the NHL will ever go there, despite this new relationship with you know with gambling. I don't know what Katie thinks about that, but uh, I, I would have thought otherwise until I heard Gary Bettman say that the other day. Right. I would have thought it would have right. forced them into some transparency, but uh, you know, surprisingly, Gary Bettman said no. Right. I guess it doesn't. And and, and again, I think that. It'll be interesting to monitor that specific aspect going forward on on people wanting to gamble on hockey games. I, I would think. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good. I I just think, and and I think Bill Daly is probably right. I mean, 
if you're going to have, and whatever the number is going to be, as you know, I mentioned uh, Pennsylvania, you know, two more NHL markets where where fans in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia will be able to go to the local casino and 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 place wagers on um, presumably on, you know, on all kinds of sports, but presumably NHL games as well. That you, you have to be. You you can't pretend it's not happening. And so, how do you you know how do you make it work? And and if you can you know if you can, I talked to an accountant who's involved in the the sports uh, industry, and he was if you have a you know the ability to go to a kiosk and have a, a soft drink or a beer and and bet on who scores the first goal if that interests you or something like that, those kinds of proposition bets. I don't know. Does it enhance your, uh, does it enhance your experience in the same way that maybe the theatrics in Vegas or the whatever, you know, the, the human bowling balls between periods. I mean, it's all, you know, it's part of the the process, right. And the more people that are interested, presumably it's better for the game itself. It's better for the owners and certainly better for the players who share in the revenues. So, yeah. um, I'll say, all right, I want, I'm doing, uh, I'm going to shift gears here and I want to ask Pierre, you, you, you have, um, you wrote a piece, um, and it's sort of fortuitous because you were always on top of the, the ebbs and flows of the game with, uh, about the possibility of Pekka Rene signing an extension in Nashville. As we're, the three of us are chatting here today, he's just been activated from uh, the IR list and uh, presumably will be rejoining the active roster for the Predators soon. And I wonder, you know, it, it, to me, the, the whole goaltending fraternity has been maybe one of the overriding themes of this first month of the NHL season. Lots of um, question marks, injuries, what's the future? Um, but I want to maybe start with you and Pekka Rene uh, um, and about how important, you know, what, what, what is upcoming for him and for the Predators and maybe if it sends a signal uh, to other teams around the NHL. Yeah, that one's going to be a fascinating one. And, uh, and what I found out this week is that the two sides have really been in the thick of it over the past week. And, uh, but it's not clear beyond that because neither side would divulge anything other than they were talking where this is headed. And, and, you know, the, the only comment David Poyle would give me the GM of the Predators is that they want Pecorini to retire a Predator and, and he's, a, you know, a very important player in the history of their franchise. Having said that, it, it's a delicate one. He's, he's turning 36 on Saturday and, you know, the 35 and over rule in the CBA is, is always thorny and, and scary and, you know, any contract you sign when you're 35 and over counts against your cap, regardless of whether the player plays out the deal or, or what have you. And, uh, and so that's where the two sides have to come at this. And, and I do think that the Predators are willing to go multi-year on it. Um, how many years? I don't know. I would think two years would probably make the most sense. But, and then how much do you pay him? I mean, he's making $7 million this year. And again, this is just me guessing, but I have to assume that the Predators would try and shoehorn him into a bit of a pay cut, um, you know, given the other salary cap balls that they're juggling. Namely, uh, Ryan Ellis's extension kicks in next season. They're hoping to sign Roman Yossi to an extension next summer, uh, and they hope to contend for many more years. So there's a lot of play here, but they definitely are trying to sign him. I just don't know if if this is something that's going to come to fruition in the short term here or going to require more work throughout the year. Well, and uh, Katie, I'm going to, I want to ask you about Henrik Lundqvist in one second, but mm-hmm. I, I guess for me, when I think of Pekka Rene, um, 
he's there isn't a classier guy in the NHL, right? He's just he's he's so important to that team. He's such a huge part of the the community. Um, his numbers are fantastic, defending Vezina Trophy winner. But uh, I mean, the, the the cruel reality is that he's he wasn't. He wasn't very good in the final two years ago against Pittsburgh. Really struggled on the road, especially in the, in the games in Pittsburgh, and 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 wasn't wasn't really sharp in the two rounds that they played last spring. And in fact, got pulled early in Game Seven at home against Winnipeg. Pierre, you and I were both there. Um, I mean, that has to be, you know, I mean, this is a team to build to, that is built to win now, and uh, there has to be some level of geez, you, you know, at some point, are we going to see the regulars? season Pecorine or the Pecorine we saw through the first three rounds of the playoffs two years ago at, at the most critical time. And uh, I wonder if you think that that falls into what we're talking about. It's not just the age and the, and where the cap is it's okay. What, what does he mean to our, ch- our chances to win a Stanley cup in Nashville? Yeah, I certainly think that, you know, that has to enter into the calculus and, you know, I, I, I think, over the years, we have sort of seen um, we've seen some goalies really thrive on the big stage and, and really cement a name for themselves as playoff performers and very clutch. And then we've seen um, some other goaltenders struggle a little bit, and and that comes into the calculus too. Um, and as far as what Pierre was saying in terms of you know whether it's a, a one year deal or a two year deal or anything beyond that would to me be surprising you know he is 35 years old 36 I mean I and and he has been I think remarkably durable right throughout his career but but to me that would be at least some level of concern of you know goalies are under a tremendous amount of stress and have a very difficult position to play and when they get older they generally trend towards getting injured so that that would be a concern on my end as well yeah I, the, the only other point i would add to that and it wasn't in my column because i got into all the other pending ufa goalies just surprising amount this year actually especially high-end sure. ones but the, the other thing about renee and i don't know if this will factor into the ultimate decision that the predators make or are able to make is that pekka renee signed a, a six or seven year contract years ago at a time when Ryan Suter and Shea Weber were the other two cornerstone players on that team along with them. And Ryan Suter chose, which is his right, chose to leave and go home to play in Minnesota. And Shea Weber signed an offer sheet with the Flyers, which again is his right. I'm not criticizing, but I don't know that it was ever forgotten uh, by the Predators that at a time when the Predators were not yet seen as a have franchise, as a, you know, a, a destination franchise like it is today. Sure. Yep. That Pecorine said, yes, I'm staying. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, again, it's probably dangerous to get into the emotions of that when you're trying to make a smart salary cap decision. But I don't think it's completely unnoteworthy. I mean, I, I think that Rene committing to that franchise when the other two guys didn't it probably means something on some level. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. No, I, I, I don't dispute that, and I think it's an excellent point. And those things are really important for David Boyle and for that franchise and that community. So, um, yeah, and I think you're right. It's going to be fascinating to see how that unfolds because that's a team. Again, it, they're going to be one of the favorites come springtime to, to win their first ever Stanley Cup, and and Pekka Rene is going to be a huge part of it. It's a question of 
well, how big a part of is how big a part of the future of that franchise is he going to be? And speaking of future of franchises, and Katie, you spent a lot of time in New York, and so I thought of you when I was reading. It was a piece by our good friend Larry Brooks, who will, in short order, be honored with the Elmer Ferguson Award going to the Hall of Fame weekend, Hall of Fame celebrations in Toronto in two weeks. Um, but a really interesting piece. Uh, about Henrik Lundqvist and the rebuilding New York Rangers and how uh, basically I took the piece uh, to mean Henrik Lundqvist is tired of people asking him about, well, do you think you might, do you think you might want out, right? Do you think you might want to go somewhere else in the twilight of your career and have a chance to to win a Stanley Cup? Of course, going to a final once uh, with the Rangers in 2014, a, a series that uh, three of us covered for ESPN with the uh, Rangers losing to the Kings in five games. But I guess, Katie, does it surprise you that at least right now, Henrik Lundqvist is, has drawn a line in the sand and said, listen, I'm, I don't want to be anywhere else. I'm a New York guy. I'm a New York Ranger. It's, it's, it's crucial to me. It's part of my identity. And I'm not, I'm not looking for an escape hatch. And I, I wonder if it surprises you. I mean, you know, you know him, you know the market very well. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, well, I think it's unfortunate that, you know, barring a, a very expeditious rebuild um, and him remaining remarkably durable and having sort of a resurgence, um, he might be one of the best to play the position to not win a cup. Um, but that being said, like, I, I think Henrik Lundqvist is through and through a New York guy. There are some, you know, guys, what I sort of witnessed when I covered that team is there were guys that could go there and really thrive under the bright lights and on the big stage and really sort of enjoy and relish all the peripheral stuff that comes with it. And there were other guys um, and who and it made them absolutely wilt. And, and it's just it's just not for everyone. It's really not. And I imagine it's similar to playing in Toronto, um, you know, in Canada or playing in Montreal. Um, you know, it takes a certain type of person and player to thrive in those environments. And Henrik Lundqvist, um, I don't think he would like playing anywhere else. I really don't. I mean, it, it is almost so much. He is so much a part of the like the fabric of that organization. And I think it is so much a part of him that I, it doesn't surprise me at all that he he would not entertain playing elsewhere. No, but you, but but you know, I, I think you're bang on, Katie. And listen, not that he doesn't love being a ranger, but a lot of his side businesses, his his off the yeah. ice industry is New York based. I mean, that's sure, it's not insignificant. But I also think deep down, and I think you know, I think Carey Price thought about this before signing an eight year extension with the Habs, and you know, wasn't really you know where were the Habs headed two years ago and now they're in a bit of a reset, but I think that, you know, the NHL is more unpredictable than ever as to really what a team looks like today may not be what they look like in nine months. Like it's so bizarre. If you think about where Colorado was two years ago at the end of the year, where if it was European soccer, they should have been relegated to the AHL and then they make the playoffs last year. And now they look like, man, the sky's the limit. Um, and I only mentioned that because in the scope of all that, not Duchesne asked for a trade and, and, and listen, I, he's not alone. None of us really saw Colorado coming this way, but he asked for a trade because he wanted to, you know, be in the playoffs. I, I think you got to be careful. I think that this system and the parody in the NHL 
is unbelievable. And the idea that you could pinpoint, you know, it reminds me of Jerome McGinley trying to figure out where he could go win this cup and, you know, jumping from Boston right. to Pittsburgh. It's hard. It, it's, it's, you know, the crushed beer can standings. I mean, I mean, sure. I, I think I know who the five best teams in the league are and the cup's probably going to come from there, but I, I just think it's more unpredictable than ever and no better example than an expansion team going on the Stanley Cup final last year. So to, Lundquist, <laughs> to, to Henrik Lundqvist's defense, yeah, I don't see the Rangers contending for quite a while, but who knows? I mean, honest to goodness. It doesn't and you know what? Long. And you know what? Like covering the Rangers as long as they did and just knowing like how they love to go all in on guys – and, and I truly, you know, I give them credit for being sort of preemptive about this rebuild and probably, you know, pulling the pin on it like before they absolutely needed to and perhaps sacrificing a playoff gate. But like, let, let's say they, you know, the young guys come along at a decent pace this year and like Panarin is a possibility. Like, mm-hmm. it's just so hard to picture the Rangers not being in on those elite marquee free agents because Ooh. that's what they do. That what is about part of their DNA. Yeah. Well, what about Eric Carlson if he decides not sure. to resign in San Jose? Sure. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying he won't. I mean, I, I think the odds are he'll probably resign in San Jose. But what if he decides he doesn't? I mean, that's sure. another, you know, Lundquist, Carlson, and who knows? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask one more question on our goaltending theme before we wrap up this edition of Two Man Advantage. And it sort of, we go back to, we talked about the LA Kings briefly uh, at a couple of points here, but uh, news out of LA that Jonathan Quick um, out now with a with having undergone knee surgery. You know, I think the time frame is uh, is is a bit fluid, but it sounds we're, we're probably talking close to a month. And, and Pierre, because there's so much fluidity in the goaltending market, I mean, we know that Sergei Bobrovsky um, is in a little bit of limbo with the Columbus Blue Jackets. He's in the final year of his deal. He's coming. He came on in relief the other night. Uh, when Eunice Corpusalo had suffered and the rest of the Blue Jackets suffered a horrific first period against Detroit. But um, lots of discussion about where Bob Barofsky might end up. A lot of issues with goaltending around the NHL. You know, Mike Smith in Calgary, um, Cam Talbot in Edmonton, and of course now with Jonathan Quick out uh, with a knee injury for a Kings team that has been frankly, one of the worst teams in the NHL through the first month. I wonder, do you look at this as, you know, is this a domino that falls that maybe creates some movement or is mm. it, or, you know, do you, how do you view the, the quick situation? I think if anything, because quick is out now, you know, probably I think four to six weeks, I think if anything, it actually does the opposite of what a lot of people might think. I think a lot of people think, oh boy, Rob Blake better go out and make a trade now. I think it's the opposite effect. I, I think it, in fact, yeah. it probably allows Rob Blake, uh, the gem of the Kings, to say, you know what? Let's not do anything stupid here. Like, it is what it is. Um, I, I think Rob Blake will take stock in how his team reacts here and plays over the next. You know, like, like I think he, I would think that he would want to give his team a good 30 games into the season before the Kings start making anything, you know, any bold move. Because, I mean, it's it's the worst possible time to try and force a move right now when, you, when you're at your lowest position of strength. I mean, your goalie's yeah. out, your team has been lousy, players have underperformed, and yeah, I'm sure every gem in the league just can't wait to help you. I, I, so, <laughs> you know, so I, I think for the Kings, uh, you know, unless something, an opportunity that's impossible to turn down presents itself, I think they just got to buckle down and, 
and really find out who they are and just hope that their key players step up. Uh, and, and that's as simple as that. And Jack Campbell will be the guy in that. And he played well earlier this season when Quick was out. And uh, and he's a terrific story in his own. So they're going to hope he can do the job, but that's about it. You know who I could see kicking the tires on Bobrovsky? The Blues. Yes, uh, another team off to a uh, not terrific start and uh, certainly Jake Allen struggling in that and also having some injury issues as well. And I, I think Pierre, you and I talked about that a couple of podcasts ago. Yeah. Like, again, okay, well, we're, you know, that's going to be the, you know, the, the, the whole Columbus situation is going to be incredible to watch as we get closer to the trade deadline and what Yarmo Kekalain and the GM there does with both Panarin and Bobrovsky. But uh, there's no question the Blues pressure on them um, is pretty incredible. And I wouldn't be surprised if if the tire kicking has already taken place. I wouldn't. I yeah, and, and, and I think it, a- yeah, and Katie, I think the real question there is not that teams would have interest in them because I think for sure they sure. would. Two-time, two-time Vezina Trophy winner. I think the question is. What is Columbus going to do? I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty clear Bobrovsky, like Panarin, neither one's going to sign with the Jackets. So, you know, if, if the Jackets were a terrible team, it'd be easy. I mean, you just start the auction now. Mm-hmm. I think the, the difficulty is that they're a good hockey team. And, yep. you know, they, 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 they're, they're, you know, they were a playoff team last year that was a goal away from being 3 nothing up on the eventual Stanley Cup champions. And they're a good team again this year. So, it's the worst position ever if you're running a hockey team to be in because you have two cornerstone players that are likely not going to resign. And, you know, can you really trade one or both before the trade deadline if you're sixth in the East? <laughs> I mean, that's really, it's a position no GM would ever want to be in. Yeah. But you know it's interesting though because we were talked about uh, David Poyle earlier and and some of the, you know the the issues that he went through he lost Dan Hamwis to free agency, lost Ryan Suter to free agency and I I remember talking to him and like and again a market to you know at, at that time that you couldn't just turn around and and, and lure a free agent uh, to to replace those cornerstone players but I just remember him saying that he would never do that again. That, that, that he would not allow an asset like that to to walk free, and that you'd put all the you know development in and the assets you'd given up to acquire them, and I and it'll be fascinating to see how Yarmo Kekalainen looks at it for that very reason, Pierre. Right, you're a playoff right. team, and you need those playoff gates. It's important. It's important for all the teams, but it's important for a team like Columbus to to be in the playoffs, generate revenue, continue to 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 grow interest in that team. Um, but is it? Do you sacrifice that to return assets for those kinds of, of players, knowing that they are likely going to walk on July first if you don't trade them beforehand? It's just, I, right, it's, and, and and you're right. I mean, the Ryan Suter experience in particular has affected David Poyle from that point on, uh, losing him for nothing, and to the point where I can tell you right now, had Brian Ellis not agreed to an extension before training camp this past summer, I don't know that Ryan Ellis isn't already on another team. And I just think it's affected the Predators so much that what happened with Ryan Suter that they're just not going to be in a position where they're going to let mm-hmm. a guy that good walk out the door for nothing. And, and you know, and that's really the tough part for Columbus is that you know that they would have loved to and they tried to extend both Brodsky and Panarin this past offseason and no doubt were fell off their chair when each camp as far as we believe to be the situation is each camp said, you know, we're not signing. 
So, I mean, that, that would have been such a blow this summer to, to the Blue Jackets, and they continue to deal with it today. And to the point where it just it feels awkward from the outside looking in to see what's going on with Bobrovsky, right? I mean, he's, you know, doesn't start three straight games. Uh, I think he's starting uh, tonight here on Thursday night, but you know, you, you know, it doesn't start opening night. It's Which like, totally oof. had to be intentional, right? Like that's right. totally tweaking him, right? You would oh, think. We think. John Tortorella would do that. Come on. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. It is time to bring to a close this edition of Two Man Advantage. But Katie I, and Pierre knows this. I rarely give the last word to anyone but myself. But I'm curious, <laughs> and I'm I'm jealous because I I know both of you are going to be at the Board of Governors meetings in a little over a month, I guess, in on the Georgia coast. Um, and so I'm excited for both of you guys to be uh, at that event. But uh, what are you working on, Katie? Is there something that uh, that you've got uh, coming up that that you're excited about, or what's uh, what's on your plate right now? Um, oh, so here's one thing that I'm excited about, kind of a longer term thing, and we kind of touched on it. Um, but in just, you know, trying to kind of envision the ways the game is changing, I'm trying to do sort of an overall assessment of, you know, hockey culture and how it's evolving. Um, and so I'm fascinated about that and sort of the micro level, even from like, you know, you look at the Carolina Hurricanes and the way they're celebrating and having so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, even to the more macro stuff, like guys being more willing to talk about things that used to be very stigmatized, like concussions, like substance abuse, like addiction, um, depression, mental health issues. So that's something that's sort of a, a huge topic that I'm kind of trying to wrap my arms around. And I think is very fascinating in ways big and small. Yeah. Well, I expect it will be as with all your stuff. Uh, expertly handled, and I look forward to that. And Pierre, anything? What What do you got going on? See, you're looking at. Him. I'm giving both of you the last word before I yeah, before we well, sign I, off here. I think it's not really next, in my character. Uh, my next uh, My next foray tomorrow will be to sit down and transcribe the uh, many interviews that I've done for my Martin Brodeur Hockey Hall of Fame piece that will run at some point next week. And uh, I had had a lot of fun working on that piece. You know, at first you're like, well, what can you possibly say about Marty Brodeur that hasn't been said? But you know, I think the most interesting stuff that will come out of the piece were his international experiences. And, you know, at the Salt Lake Olympics, stealing Cujo's job after one game and what a big story that was. And then at the Vancouver Olympics, seeing the all-time winningest goalie pulled out by Mike Babcock in a home Olympics and replaced by Roberto Luongo and, and hearing not just uh, Marty Berdur talk about it with me recently, but also other people involved in those decisions talk about it. So... I look forward to putting pen to paper on that. Good stuff. All right. Well, Katie, terrific having you aboard. And Pierre, it's always good work. And uh, let's do it again sometime. But uh, always a ton of fun. So thanks for hanging out. Thanks for having us, Scotty. See you, guys. All right. Perfect. We are good to go. Great. Thanks very much, guys. All right. It's awesome. Thanks. See you, Katie. Bye, guys. See you, guys. Bye-bye.